Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, this series that is part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. Its aim, as ever, is to unearth stories and insights from the top people within high performance and what they're doing as sport returns to our lives and edges back to some sort of new normality. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I'd like to say hello to all the returning listeners and say a big welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time. It is a pleasure to have you with us. In a moment, we'll be diving into a conversation with Conor O'Shea discussing rugby as it re-emerges from lockdown, how roles within high performance have changed and will change, as well as the amazing jobs the teams behind the teams have done in getting sport up and running again after COVID. Unsurprisingly, all our members are picking the brains of one another in different sports to discuss challenges and best practice around all topics of return to play. We pride ourselves on making the high performance world a little bit smaller by introducing members to one another as a problem shared is almost definitely a problem halved. If you'd like to find out more about how to become a member and gain access to an unrivaled network of the world's high performance community that challenges the thinking and shares insights spanning all sports and all aspects of performance, then please visit leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Now on to today's episode. As always, it's a joy to have my co-host Michael Caulfield alongside me and it's been a few weeks since we've done the last episode, Michael. So how are you this afternoon? I'm particularly well and been a, and I've been back out working in the world of sports, so that is the best news of all, I'm allowed to say that. Absolutely, good stuff. Well, our guest today is Performance Director at England Rugby and of course, former Head Coach of Italy and Director of Rugby at Harlequins, it's Connor O'Shea. Good afternoon, Connor. How are you? Afternoon, guys. Yeah, all good, all good. You tested me today with a new... Um... With with a with a new uh, application, new so I've, been, I've been on everything. I've been on everything this lockdown, and this is a new one. So looking forward to it. Yeah, apologies for that. Another new platform. Uh, well, it's actually been a kind of four months somehow since we since we last spoke, and I guess the best place to start is ask you. You know, how do you reflect upon that time period? And you know, has it taught you anything? Has it made you more aware or appreciate anything? How how's it been? Oh, I think all of the above, isn't it? For everybody, um, it's just been. What's that word that everyone uses the whole time? Unprecedented and exceptional, and uh, it's just been a, the the strangest time. But opened your eyes. It's probably the busiest in in a lot of ways. Like working from home for the majority of time has its advantages, and it's also got its drawbacks. It just uh, every day kind of merges into one, doesn't it? But and the amount of work that's been going on, probably in areas that uh, I've learned a lot on uh, over the over the last number of months, you know, away from the pitch and into finance and economics and and, and areas of uh, that, you know, probably refreshed from my college days and my banking days from many months ago. So it's been, uh, it's both bizarre and incredible and the way people have reacted, certainly within our environment, to an incredibly challenging time. It's been very humbling, actually, how, how people have continued despite the big challenges that are ahead. Connie, you were saying that the huge challenges you've had, it's been humbling, but it's also been restrictive because we've been mainly working from home. Can I ask you, Connor, what has it taught you about communicating with your teams and your people, both good and, dare I say it, the not-so-good side of communication during during this different period? Um, I wouldn't say there's been any... The, the not-so-good side of the communication is not meeting people physically. And there's been a bit, but, you know, nowhere near. And, you know, you talk about what we need to learn coming out of lockdown, but you also need to make sure that you don't learn too well. You have to get a balance. You don't want to revert to the old 
I'm not saying people ever go through the motions, but you're actually traveling or going to meetings, which can be important from the development of relationships. But are they always necessary when it comes to both cost and efficiency? But there is that balance because you always have the interpersonal and how you develop. And you have to be very careful if you're old like myself, not too old, but if you've got a bit of experience, and you've met a lot of people, then you've already developed a lot of those relationships. Whereas if you're young and starting out, you haven't. And that connection is something you want. So, you know, I think in terms of that communication, I think we just have to be very careful the lessons we learn and how we take them forward, that it's not all imbalanced one way or t'other uh, in how we connect with each other. Well, I hope you keep plugging that message because I don't think we can live our lives on Zoom, but you can't live our lives on a train, on a plane or on a motorway either. And I think you're so right that the the balance is is required. And now that the sport is back, rugby's back, many sports kind of returned in different shapes and sizes. But from what you've seen so far, what have you thought of the return to play approach from within rugby during the first week or so? Um, listen, first of all, it's just great to see it back. Um, I know my old club won their game on Friday night, uh, Harlequins against Sale. Uh, we got the family sitting down on Friday night watching rugby, grabbed the beer, and it was beautiful. Not the, the prettiest of games, but if you're Paul Gustard, you'd have been very happy. If you're Steve Diamond, you wouldn't have been because, you know, sometimes <laughs> you tend to forget looking at all these games as they restart. These guys haven't played for five months and, you know, their first battle, so to speak, is a battle, um, uh, you know, in front of everyone on TV. It's not behind closed doors on a, on a well, it was behind closed doors, but uh, not, not in a friendly that nobody looks at. and the result means a lot. So what do I take? I think you, you said rugby coming back in various different shapes and sizes. You look down at New Zealand and Australia, you see the crowds, but then you look at how tenuous those crowds are. An outbreak in New Zealand and, and suddenly it's the final round. Uh, Highlanders, Hurricanes, I think it was. Nobody you know, nobody watching and Blues Crusaders off or whatever the, that final game was. So we know we're walking a tightrope. And we also know that we want to see not just the professional game back, we want to see the community game back. And, you know, from a NORFU point of view, Rugby Football Union, the work that Steve Granger and his team have done in the RFU, the work that Simon Kemp and Keith Stokes and people on the medical side have done to make sure that we get the game back has been absolutely phenomenal. So the next step will be to see how we can evolve the game as we know at a community level to the to being the game again that it was. So there's just so many hoops to jump through, but you, you keep on coming back to player welfare and safety being the most important yeah absolutely you know the, the team behind the team has, has been incredible the last few months I, I guess looking at the players very specifically and you may have not had a huge amount of interaction but you know any interaction you've had with players has it been different that you've noticed do they have more questions about how they train how they approach things obviously during lockdown they had a lot to learn about themselves i guess and you know some may have changed a little bit is, yeah. is there anything that's been highlighted to you no well, well fortunately now my, my role has changed away from the pitch to off the pitch matters and there's enough of those that going on so i'll leave that to eddie and, and all the coaches the dors <laughs> but you know certainly we, we've had a, a lot of conversations about player welfare about the challenges ahead for the players over this next year the next 12 months you see 46 weeks 46 games plus a lines tour and maybe some international so the significant challenges and making sure that everybody has to you know give a little bit to make sure that we arrive out of the uh, the other side with you know competition integrity with everyone getting a fair crack of the whip with players in and most importantly players in in one piece and fit not just for 12 months but for the next five ten years so there's been a huge amount of work on that the layman looking in will say well they've just had five months off they 
can just crack on, can't they? But mm-hmm. whereas they may be, you know, rested and recuperated, if not physically, or if not mentally, certainly physically, there are other challenges. You forget how deconditioned to the physical contact you can become. Uh, it's too long since I played a game of rugby, but no amount of preseason prepares you for that first game, for that first hit house. So we have to be really, really careful that the players are looked after, but they will be. I mean, the the, the science, the detail that the DORs, directors of rugby and the clubs go into, that Eddie goes into for each of his players is phenomenal. You know, I think from a pathway point of view as well now, we're just itching to see the return of both community rugby and underage rugby. And, but it'll all happen in due course and, you know, some things you can't rush. And does that make the communication, Connor, even more vital between clubs and union that the relationship with the directors of rugby, with the scientists, that you know as much as possible? Because I've read this week and we've all seen Dylan Hartley's first few paragraphs of his new book and one of the ex-Harlequins players has retired this morning with you know shoulder problems. Is it at the forefront of your thoughts, the communication with regards to player welfare? Yeah, and, you know, it's front and centre of everything. I mean, whether there's discussions at World Rugby level just before lockdown, we went to a symposium, which was, you know, front and centre of that was player welfare. The game has become, well, you could say more attritional, but it's always been a game. Uh, you know, it's funny, I was, I was doing a podcast with Eddie and Joe Roth, and he was talking about playing, you know, 55 games in a, in, in 16 months or 13 months or something like that. And, but he said he didn't want to train, so he preferred playing. You know, there's always been this kind of attritional and do you play, do you rest, do you train? Where do you get that appropriate sort of stuff? And, you know, really sorry to hear it, Jack, Jack Clifford. Uh, I dropped him a text the minute I saw the news because he's a, a, a young man that I saw grow up at Quinns and get his first cap when I was there and an exceptional talent and probably arguably would have been both a club captain and an international captain if he had stayed fit. But these things happen. There have been other examples down through the years. Think of Tom Reese, the ex-Wasp, mm. an England player. Again, probably would have been captain of England on definitely of Wasp for a number of years. But for the injury and ended up, I think, he's a doctor, isn't he? So probably every cloud. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and he'd, be, he'd be a good doctor to have at your bedside. So uh, it's always been front and centre. And I think we just have to keep on making sure that we make this game as safe as we possibly can, not lose the essence of the game and understand it might be 20 odd years since my ankle went from underneath me in King's home mm. you know it happens it's happened back in the 1980s the 90s there'll always be injuries obviously there'll be more high profile you know without wittering on I remember watching some of the older players when I was growing up and you know they'd gone on lines tours in the 50s and 60s and you'd see them hobbling around with their knee replacements and I'd go oh, I'll never be like that you come to our era you look at some of my era Paul Wallace Jeremy Davidson some of the things they have it's part some people are lucky they come through they have no injuries and others aren't quite so lucky yeah absolutely I was a, I was a season ticket holder down at Wasps for in the early 2000s so I remember Tom Reese fondly what, what a player he was wow he was <laughs> as you said so yeah we talked a little bit about how rugby is going to re-emerge do you, you know talk to him about the welfare side do you think tactically or the way the game is approached will be any different going forward you know quicker faster there's been a little bit of chat of that or do you think it'll be first and foremost let's just get playing again a lot is made in the media over law adaptations are how you look but fundamentally the game hasn't changed and there may be a way that 
the referees look at the breakdown at the entry at the offside line you know they might change the setup for the scrum or little tweaks to mulls they'll always be but fundamentally the game doesn't change and i just think people make too big a deal yes you have to adapt to law interpretation but there hasn't been a rewriting of the laws so i think what you're seeing at the moment is people do want the game to become quicker they want to see more ball and play time but every cycle there is attack is on top defense is on top attack is on top defense is on top and they just you know a little tweak a little tweak of interpretation can just tip that balance in the right way or the way the game wants it to be done at the time and i've just returned connor from a weekend in in northern ireland on some football coaching courses pro license a license etc and it was fascinating to watch some of the most up-to-date coaches speak about how they've evolved and adapted to football do you think that coaches and staff will need to evolve in rugby as the as the game inevitably develops as it does yes and and, and interestingly you know one of the you talked at the very start about the communication and, and I've been lucky with the RFU to be the community department asked at the start of lockdown for myself and Eddie to do a few podcasts just on experiences and talk about things. And we've done that and we've, for the second series, we've started in, you know, talking to other coaches and other, you know, I mentioned Joe Roth this morning, but Joe Schmidt, we've done one with him. And actually our whole conversation was, how do you see rugby in the future? And that use of technology was front and center of how that is. And, you know, that could be technology to aid your decision making as opposed to being on pitch taking a load. It could be technology to improve a skill set. There are so many different ways you could use technology and be inventive. So we talk about player welfare or player load. Are there ways we can recreate things through technology that will take away from that load? So it's fascinating where the game, you know, I'm always very thankful, to be honest, guys, that um, I'm not a player anymore because there is nowhere to hide on a pitch it's quite frightening and you, and you played and then of course since then you've had your different roles post post their you know, playing career director of rugby as you said in, in the club setting with harlequins and then head coach in italy and now now in your role performance director with england how how do they differ and then you know from, from your perspective personally you know like you said earlier you went probably from quite a hands-on role with the players in italy and now maybe a step back behind the scenes and they require different skill sets so how have the roles differed for you in the first few months uh, well, it's obviously very different now. I don't think you could have written the script. Yeah, very there, different. There, there was no pamphlet on pandemic written um, in any course I've ever done. <laughs> um, uh, listen, they, they all are different. They all are opportunities to learn. And you're also a different, I talked about, you know, the difference between a young person and an older person in terms of communication and their base of people that they know that they have to develop relationships with are different. And it's the same in any job, whether it be, you know, you retire after breaking your leg and I was director of rugby or managing director at London Irish and didn't know what I was doing. And I was helped by a load of people at Harlequin, surrounded by really good people, great players, good coaching staff, top-class chief exec, and people like Charles Gillings and Duncan Savile, who are unbelievable owners. Italy was a great cultural learning experience. You know, I knew I was there for a specific role, and, you know, the, the you know, it would have been lovely to think, and they, they asked me to stay for another four years, but that was just not something that was right for myself and my family. And fortunately, this opportunity came up with the RFU, and I hope to be in this for a long, long time now, because I see the, both having worked in the RFU for three and a half years before, it's a great organization. There's people who are so committed both professionally and volunteers which just make the day-to-day work just so enjoyable and it's been a really difficult period for every organization not just the RFU these last few months but uh, I just look on every role that you have as an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to leave something in a better place and um, 
uh, you know, but each one is a step along and a progression and you learn and get more experience from each one. So potentially, and I don't, I don't know, maybe going into this, it's the ideal time for me to be doing this sort of role because I've, I've done every other sort of role, you know, whether it be coaching, playing and uh, administrating and chief exec. And this is my passion, looking at what the structure of the RFU performance pathway will be like, uh, supporting in any way, shape or form I can with Eddie, looking at coach development and referee and match officials and, and how, the, you know, the, the succession planning within that, looking at the growth of the women's game, which is huge. And, and we've also got the challenge mm-hmm. of sevens. So, you know, where, where that where that sits, you know, with, with world rugby and when, when that comes back online. So loads of challenges but it's you know just great people around to work with and what are the what are the greatest demands in your time now then Connor because you you, you gave us the, the huge menu there as a performance director because that role has changed but post lockdown now that we're back playing what are what are the main demands on your time at the moment I think just trying to make sense of how we're going to come out of lockdown if you're being if you've been honest because we're still well well away from it if you if you think about from a pathway point of view schoolboy rugby community rugby still has a long way to to go to get back to where we know it is and you know Steve Granger as I said at the start and, and his team John Lawn and all those people in the RFU are just incredible what they've managed to get through over the last couple of months and so it'll be looking and making sure that we re-energize our pathway the way we feel it should be and there's a lot of talk in terms of what the future structure shape of the game how to make it sustainable uh, you know so a lot will be taken away i'm very fortunate when you look at it's like at anything the menu sounds big but then you realize that there's a heck of a lot of people that know a lot more about the respective areas than me so you trust them and, and hopefully you're just bringing it all together so i think pathway it'll be i said i could i could list the menu again but we just want to see first and foremost rugby back on the pitch i know that uh, your head coach eddie jones is giving a big interview tonight i think on on bt but how have you and Eddie set out the most efficient way of, of operating now that we're living in a very different world? Because the relationship between performance director and head coaches is so crucial. I'm sure people would like to know how have you approached it? Because you're two very experienced operators and I presume you've been denied a lot of personal contact the last few months. So how, what, what's the best way of you to operate uh, as we move into the next phase of returning to play? So that is unbelievably simple. I mean, I'm here to support Eddie in any way, shape or form to make sure that he gets what he needs going into 2023 to win the World Cup. And then that, that's it, it's his job. He looks after the senior team. He selects, he coaches, he works. I have nothing to do with that. That's his bag. Uh, for me, it's all the other lists of the menu. So if you were to summarize, say his job is 2023, mine is 27 and 31. Not that I'd be coaching the team ever, but we have to all the time look at succession. And when I say 27, 31, I'm also saying 25 and 29 for the women we're looking at how the the sevens can be you know reborn because it's obviously going through a really difficult time so uh, and then looking at that coach development and succession looking at the the refereeing with tony Sredbury. so eddie has all the pressure and uh, I'll, I'll just uh, hopefully enjoy putting systems systems in place to support him but also to make sure we're sustainable and winning in the future when i hear you say 27 and 31 and then the two intervening years the women it seems a million miles away at the moment, but it won't be. And I think a lot of us have watched the World Cup final from 2003 and seen the comparison to rugby now, 17, 17 years later or so. Do you genuinely believe the game will change that much in, in the next 10 to 12 years? Or will you, as you said earlier, will it fundamentally still be the same game with a few tweaks? Uh, it'll change when you look at it. I mean, I, I thought, you know, we thought when we were playing in the late 80s, 90s, we thought the people in the 70s were dinosaurs. 
uh, <laughs> now you look at you know the early 2000s and you look at the condition you look at the jersey Clive was the, one of the first ones only who brought in the, the skin tight didn't he for you know making sure you evaded the tackle but yeah. you think of the old cotton jerseys that were there uh, you know even as early as late as 2000 so you, you look now and say oh god 2000s they look pretty uh, pretty old don't they I'm sure in 10-15 years time there'll be people laughing at their current crop I hope not because they're just unbelievable athletes now but <laughs> I, I think it was ever thus you always change it always evolves always I watched a few tapes as one does um, there's, an, there's an old word tapes of some of the rugby in the 70s <laughs> because I was doing and some of the rugby played can I can I stick up for the old school here and even your generation some of the rugby played 20, 30, 40 years ago was outstanding skill wise though wasn't it Connor? Ah. Uh incredible i suppose what's evolved over time is coaching is organization is fitness and understanding you, you had a, an era and i played it in the in the 80s late 80s a club where you genuinely trained tuesday and thursday and you rocked up on a saturday and international preparation was better but it was pretty old school and there were teams that were ahead of that curve uh, internationally and in some ways ironically my, my previous job the Italians were ahead of a lot of the home nations in that early 90s and they had people like Nas Bosa, Michael Cecha, Wayne Smith all these people were over there playing back in the 80s and, and 90s and uh, they were ahead of the curve but then they got left behind that so I think I think change change does happen and uh, you go 73 is that the greatest try ever scored with the greatest skill 100% I mean yes, there is. are players there are players now that aren't fit to lace the boots of some of the players that played in those eras but would those players be able to compete with their current shape and physicality no but they would have evolved as well so you can never compare one era to the next but it's like looking at anything that's terrible I'm looking just like you I'm looking back at golf and rugby and all these things that have been on repeats and you know how the world how the Ryder Cup was won in 95 and you look back at Monty in 95 teeing off and stuff like that and you just go gee this game has changed so yeah you should never compare eras it would be the wrong thing to do but you know things evolve and whatever happens in 15 years time we'll look back and go God, they look old. Although I'd, I'd like, I'd like <laughs> to see Mike, Mike Gibson or Barry John or Phil Bennett trained yeah. train to the current levels playing on those pitches. I think they could have played. Uh, oh well, I mean, <laughs> they. And if you, one of the joys of rugby is, uh, and, and it'd be all sports, I'm sure. But one of my personal joys of rugby and going out to Scarlets and when you meet or going to Cardiff and you meet Gareth Edwards and you meet Phil Bennett and you are almost your legs are like jelly when you meet them because you're just meeting these people who were I remember Mike Gibson in 94 joined us as a kind of a coaching assistant but more advisor to Australia in 94 and just to hear how simplistically he thought the game should be played and it was almost so simplistic it, it it beggared belief, but it made so much sense. And they're, they're the ones. And Brian O'Driscoll will be the same. Johnny will be the same as they, Martin Johnson, the Lawrences of the world. So you'll always have these that will be looked on. But for me, yeah, you're right. My things of meeting Phil Bennett and Gareth Edwards and Mike Gibson, I, but that is where you see me get serious stage fright. Before I hand back to Matt, I will say when I went as a paying guest on the 97 Lions tour, 
uh, we, 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 we had a scratch team every Saturday morning, no kicking, and we, we recruited Willie John McBride as our coach from the, from, the, from the travel company. And I can say to this day, it was my greatest 15 minutes in sport getting changed next to Willie John McBride. So there we go, Matt. He didn't have any South African uh, uh, calls for all-in fights, did he, for your games? Hope he didn't. Well, <laughs> if he did, I was running in the opposite direction, that's for sure. But there we are. <laughs> Oh, good. Comparing areas, I think you're right, Connor, is, is obviously very diff- difficult, especially when you talk about players. When, when it comes to the coach specifically, I guess, how how is that evolving? And what, what does the coach of the future look like? Not necessarily the head coach, but you know, coaching as a as a specialism, you know, how does that look, in, look like in the future? And even just a few years, how has that evolved? Um, it's been really, as I said, kind of fascinating talking to Eddie in these podcasts and, and, and actually getting some time when we've been doing them to kind of shoot the breeze away from the day-to-day work so you know like just having a, a talk and and I, I look at him as someone who's just so a bit like a bit like a Wayne Smith or a Joe Smith or probably a Steve Hansen who I, I know but I wouldn't know how he coaches but I, I've I've seen firsthand the the you know Joe and Wayne and these but they think ahead of the game they always have interesting you know talking to Joe Roth as an example and another one of them this morning and uh, with Eddie, how Joe Roth spoke about Eddie being ahead of his time. And you listen to what someone like Eddie Jones will say about the future of coaching. And we've become very broad in what we've done. You know, you have an army of specialists, but he very much sees the future as potentially the generalist coming back in more. So you'll have smaller coaching mm-hmm. teams and less of this generalist specific skill now people may balk at that and say oh you need kicking coaching need this that and the other but when i hear someone like him say you'll see more generalist less specialist that's not saying they're not going to be broad coaching teams but like there are times you see a coaching team of a thousand you know that you've everyone from your tiny mm-hmm. shoelace coach to to, to <laughs> and people think that's a good coaching team so i, I would listen to that i'd say the, the knowledge the the easy way this t-shaped coach you know the the generalist the, the generalist coach but the specialist skill and I would like to think that you'll still have those specialists, but uh, I think people will have that broader knowledge and that more generalist way of coaching. And then obviously technology is a huge part of it. And what about the players, Connor, if, if I can ask about predict, predicting talent in the future from, from, from rugby players? Do you, feel, do you still think you'll still have a huge playing resource pool to, to choose from? And how will you predict maybe talent changing in the coming years? Talent identification, if it was an exact science, there would be no one in a job and everybody get it right the whole time. So <laughs> I think you have to open up more and more avenues of where players could come from. I think one of the areas that I would see is, uh, as, as a pretty key emphasis, and we talked about player welfare right at the start, is to make sure that people have other avenues because rugby is a short career. It may sound like it's lucrative, but it's not as lucrative as people would make you think. The very top might have earned a lot of money and are able to go into TV, the majority of us have to, you know, work bloody hard for a living. And we have to make sure Mm. that you give people those outlets that they're not finishing their careers and, and, and been spat out. So I think in terms of our playing base, I think we need to expand where it comes from, both men's and women's. Uh, I think women's rugby is a huge growth area uh, for the sport in general. And I've been seeing that in Italy and how, how it's grown in Italy. You know, I think across the world, it could be a, a real focal point for, for change. And from the men's point of view, well paid at the moment, but make sure that we give people not just an entry, but also an exit. And I think that will make them better rugby players as well. 
I think people who just focus on the one thing potentially aren't as broad-minded. And when the downs happen and you have nothing to fall back on, it becomes a very, very difficult world to live. But if you've got something to fall back on and something else to think about, I think you're in a better place. I, I couldn't agree more from my time working with jockeys back in the 80s and the 90s when you were playing, Connor. The, the biggest breakthrough we made was getting them prepared for life after racing because it, I think it makes them into a better sports person if they've got something else to focus on rather than just the result on a Saturday or a Tuesday. Yeah, I, th- I think you can come home. You know, we, we all lived our life young, didn't we? And, you know, thinking of my days when I w- w- you know, lived with people like David Humphreys and Niall Woods and in London. And, I mean, we had... Uh, I wouldn't go into the stories, but we had some great fun. But we also went to Richmond College and in the early days, and we did French together. And we did it because, well, A, it was our background. We hadn't started out professionally in rugby. It just happened upon us when we were in our mid-20s. So we always felt we had time to do something. Whereas now, potentially, we're saying to people, you have to be, to be professional. Stuart Barnes wrote an article, The First Year of Professionalism. It wouldn't have been the first or second, 95, 96. It's always stuck in my head. And he said that people think professionalism is nine to five, seven days a week. It's not. And what people have have learned is professionalism is how you act in your day-to-day life. It is making use of a lot of free time because you can't train the whole time. Whereas I think a lot of people went into the pro world thinking, oh, we have to fill the day. We have to fill the day with uh, weights, Mm -hmm. with conditioning, with nutrition talks, with this, that, and the other. It's not professionalism, having a really good balance. And yes, you sacrifice a lot, but you have to have balance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting the way you talk about talent as well. And, and, you know, uniquely, I guess, within within England rugby, how are you creating and designing that environment to embed that new young talent? Not not just, I guess, within the England first team, like you said, that's maybe Eddie's, Eddie's Eddie's role a little bit, but you know, across all the teams, is there something you do uniquely in England? And I don't expect you to give away any secret no, sauce, but you know, how, we, how are you that We haven't done much of a chance yet. Uh, I, I started in January <laughs> and I've been in lockdown since March. So, uh, you know, we're hoping to get back. No, but we've got, and, and it's like in any, I talked to Joe Lydon yesterday, who's, you know, doing uh, the kind of the Irish talent identification role in mm. in England and a, lo- a load of, you know, look at Ryan Jones now in Wales heading up there and you look at Jim Mallander in Scotland and a load of good people around and there's been so much good work done uh, over the years, both, you know, by the clubs, by the academies, by, you know, so many people. And I was there in the union over a decade ago. So I know the work that goes into it. So any job like this is not a, you reap what you sow. So a lot of what we have to do is make sure that we come through this pandemic and we've got a system in place, which is right. Uh, you know, you cover over the period of time that we've had, which has been a really difficult one the last number of months, but you make sure you're fit for purpose that in four, eight, 12 years times, the decisions you're making now uh, are the ones that actually people will be either benefiting or suffering from, and it won't be you. So you have to make sure you make the right decisions for now, for the future, as opposed to the right decisions now for you selfishly. And that's what mm-hmm. a team is. And uh, you, you'd have the same in terms of the uh, the, the people you work with. So we all look at the pathway coaches that we currently have and hopefully can expand upon. And you look at, you know, Simon Middleton coaching the, the, the women's team with Nikki Ponsford as the, you know, the head of performance for the women and people, just good people, safe hands, Simon Kemp doing the medical side. I mean, could you get a better person seeing him in action over the last six, mm-hmm. seven months? 
what he has done to get rugby back on the park with Keith Stokes at the RFU and other, you know, Richard Tingay, Keith, uh, you know, Katie Wojcik, uh, people in the RFU, Matt Cross at the at PRL, it's been nothing short of phenomenal. And when you've got that sort of those sort of people in an environment, then a lot of the times you can kick back and just watch them go and and hopefully just create the the type of environment people want to be in, enjoy what you do. Uh, that's why we just want to see rugby back on the pitch and you know full crowds in Twickenham and everywhere. So it's uh, it's a fascinating time. I was going to ask you about leadership, but I think you've just explained it there in a paragraph with regards to the people. And I I call it the invisible hours to get sport back on the road because it has been an extraordinary hard work to get sport back on the road. So maybe that was your example of good leadership. The work that they have done, uh, and not just in rugby, but I'm sure it's been done across the board, you know, with, with Public Health England, with DCMS and a, a load of people within there. But I just look very closely at the hours and sometimes pedantic and the, the work that has to be done that you go to, does that really have to be done? But you're dealing with a crisis like we've never dealt with before. And you'd like to think that it'll all pass us by and a lot of the work that's been done will have been for no reason because we're back to normal but the fact is we're not back to normal and the only way we're on the pitch that we're seeing rugby that we're seeing some of the sports is the sacrifices and the unseen work people are doing and i don't think those people can ever be thanked enough to be honest uh and uh it's uh, it's it's a it's a real uh probably the frustration you get you walk down by the river a few months back and you see a group of lads playing touch rugby non-socially distancing you know this is right in the middle of things and you feel like going gee just you know get a life you know we're, we're we need to everyone to get through this together but uh you know it's a majority of people and, and the work i've seen done honestly off the charts yeah i was in the cricket bubble at the gs bowl for three weeks when when ireland were when you're playing england and I, I just think the amount of effort that went into getting 30 people onto a cricket field for three games of cricket was beyond anything I've seen before. Quite extraordinary. Connor, one quick question for you, if I may. We've had a bit of time, all of us, uh, even though we, 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 we were chained to our Zoom all day. Just during the past four to five months, has there been one book or one programme or one documentary away from your normal chosen field of rugby which has really appealed to you which has just struck a chord with you for and it could be anything from music to dance to theatre to comedy to sport of course has it been one film or one documentary that just grabbed your attention for a different reason gee that's a great question isn't it yeah it is yes yeah. a brilliant <laughs> question asked by myself so it must be a genius but is there something there which is just from Sunderland till I die I've heard it's got a few mentions through to obviously yeah, but I, there, there might be one that I can't mention because it's a little bit dark and gritty but we got we got we got hooked on Ozark on Netflix which is a kind of a mm. money laundering program which we probably shouldn't have but we got we got very much stuck into those three series quite badly in, in our house uh, obviously just myself and my wife it was too uh, <laughs> too adult for, too adult for the kids uh, yeah. I think Everyone's everyone's watched the last dance, haven't they? Jordan's, yeah. and then a a movie, a nice sporting, feel good, and educational in everything is Glory Road, which is I think on Amazon Prime actually, and that is a great basketball movie. Okay, I've just well, I've just written that down in my little black book, so that's why I asked the question for purely selfish reasons. But the people listening to this can also have a, a look at Glory Road on Amazon Prime, but other other outlets, of course are available I'm, sh- I'm sure uh, the only reason i say that the only the only reason i say that is because my brother told me to watch it 
and I couldn't get it on Netflix. And he said it's on Amazon Prime, so I said that's why I haven't. So you couldn't get it on Netflix. That's why I, I, I it's in my head. I had to say Amazon Prime. <laughs> Well, I can also say I forgot that you were initially in banking. I hadn't forgotten you played. I had forgotten about your ankle going at King's Home, which will still annoy you and probably cause a bit of pain in, in future years. But in the meantime, uh, it was good to chat again for the second time. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. You might have seen that I can just go on for hours, so I won't because you have other meetings to go to. But thank you very much indeed for your Pleasure. time. I'm going to hand back the app uh, and stay fit and healthy. And, and thank you for getting the game back because sport is, in my opinion, even though it's unimportant, it's still very important. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Connor. Um, thank you, Michael. Pleasure to chat to you both as always. And hopefully it won't be long till the next time and in, and in person next time as well. But same of us to Eddie and the team down at HQ and take care and best of luck with everything. In Cheers, guys. In a few weeks and months. Thank you. Absolutely. That's it for another episode. But if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you can find many more like this on the Leaders Content Hub, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or all good podcast providers, and probably a few bad ones as well. Check us out at leaders underscore insight on Twitter as we post all our content on there as well. Connor, Eddie, and their team at the RFU became members of the Leaders Performance Institute last year. And if you want to do the same and access content, virtual learning, events, and also engage with over 700 members from 150 teams in 25 countries and 20 sports worldwide, then head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to learn more about the home of total high performance. Once again, thank you to John, Luke and all the content team behind the scenes for making this all possible. We are loving these conversations and we really, really hope you're enjoying them as well. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon.